Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 15 is our text for this morning. The title of the message is Preparation for Ministry. You have your new Mark scripture journals, or if you have a bulletin this morning, I want to encourage you to take notes as we go. Let me encourage you to stand first, though, as we read God's word together. Turning our attention to our text for this morning, Mark, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 15, pens the following words. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God abides forever. Go ahead and grab a seat. Number one, if you're taking notes this morning, is the baptism of Jesus. We're going to start this morning focusing on verses 9 through 11, specifically the account of the baptism of Jesus. Let me turn your attention to verses 9 through 11. Look at your Bibles there again. Mark writes, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth, his hometown of Galilee, and was baptized by John in the river Jordan. And when he, Jesus, came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, an audible voice from the Lord, you are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. Now, Mark opens verse 9, telling us that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. It's interesting to note that this is the only mention of Jesus' hometown in the Gospel of Mark. As a matter of fact, this is the only mention of Nazareth really in the Bible outside of the Gospels. Nazareth is not mentioned in the Old Testament. Nazareth is not even mentioned by Josephus, uh, one of the great Jewish historians, uh, church historians. Nazareth was a small, obscure village in Galilee. It was safe to say that coming from Nazareth didn't do much for Jesus' reputation. As a matter of fact, some people would have just regarded Jesus uh, as being just as obscure as the little village in which he came from. Simply a nobody from nowhere. But nothing could be farther from the truth. For out of Nazareth comes the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Leave it up to God to bring his king from the small, obscure village of Nazareth. No pomp. No real red carpet, though John the Baptist did prepare the way, was the forerunner. Jesus comes out of an obscure village in the middle of nowhere. Mark tells us that Jesus came from Nazareth to be baptized by John in the Jordan River. Remember the mass exodus that we saw last week? If you look back at verse 5 there in your Bible for just a second, we saw the, the whole country of Judea and Jerusalem coming out to be baptized I mentioned last week that that's in the, the present tense. In other words, they, they kept on coming. Uh, they, 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 they kept on flocking out of Judea and Jerusalem to be baptized. They kept on repenting of their sins. Well, Jesus was among the crowds. At, at, some, at some point, uh, Jesus joined the, the mass of people as they made their way to be baptized by John in the Jordan River. Now, Jesus had been living in Nazareth for the last 30 years. Luke chapter 3 tells us that he was around 30 years old. Uh, after being born to Joseph and Mary in Bethlehem, he had been working as a carpenter. Mark will tell us that in Mark chapter 6. He was a technon, a carpenter. That's where we get our English word technology uh, or technical school or technical trade. Jesus was a carpenter. He had a technical skill, a technical trade. But now Jesus leaves Nazareth. 
The time has come. He, he closes the carpenter shop door and he heads out to meet John the Baptist right on schedule. He is about to go public. Jesus is about to leave the small, obscure village of Nazareth and he's about to go public with his ministry. Thus, the baptism of Jesus serves as the inaugural event of Jesus' public ministry. And this is interesting. And this has caused no shortage of tension uh, among scholars and commentators as they wrestle with the question, why on earth was Jesus baptized? Jesus is coming out with the mass exodus of people from Judea and Jerusalem to be baptized. They were repenting of their sins, but here comes the sinless Son of God to be baptized as well. Why is Jesus being baptized? Matthew colors in a little context for us. Don't turn to Matthew now. I'll have you turn to Matthew's gospel here in just a few moments as we look at the temptation of Jesus. But Matthew colors in a little bit of context for us in Matthew chapter 3. Verses 13 through 15, when he writes, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Thus he consented. Here again we see the the immense humility of John. Here, here Jesus comes to John, and John says, you want me to baptize you? You are the one whom I have just spoken about in saying that I am unworthy to stoop down, to kneel down, and to untie your sandals, and you want me to baptize you? You need to baptize me. Jesus cuts the conversation off right there, and he says, it is necessary, or it is fitting, to fulfill all righteousness. But who am I? Who am I? That's that's the question that John asks. In his estimation, he should be baptized by Jesus. But Jesus' response is, let it be so for now. Thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Now to say that Jesus' baptism was a baptism of repentance would be contrary to the entire teaching of the New Testament. Jesus had no sin of which he needed to repent. But there certainly are reasons that Jesus came to be baptized. Though he himself was without sin, he came to identify himself with sinners who did receive a baptism of repentance. And so let me just suggest a few reasons here that Jesus may have come to be baptized by John in the Jordan River. First, it was an act of obedience. Showing that Jesus was in full agreement with God's overall plan of redemption. It was an act of obedience. Secondly, it was an act of self-identification. Jesus is identifying with the very ones whom he came to save. Though he himself was without sin, he was identifying himself with sinners. Which Jesus would do throughout his ministry. And then he would walk to a Roman cross at the end of his life. And there he also would identify with sinners as he hung naked and alone drinking God's unmitigated wrath down to its dregs every last drop. He identified with us and stood in our stead. Third, it was an act of self-dedication to his messianic mission, signifying his official acceptance of an entrance into his mission. It was an act of obedience, it was an act of self-identification, and it was an act of self-dedication few reasons that Jesus came to be baptized, though he himself was the sinless, is the sinless son of God. Now, look in your Bibles there at verses 10 and 11. Mark writes this, some beautiful imagery here, bursting with Old Testament significance. Mark writes, and when he, Jesus, came up out of the water, Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Blossoming, blooming words here with imagery, with significance. Notice the first word here, immediately. We said last week that 
Mark employs this little word some 42 times throughout his gospel. This is the first. This is the first. Immediately upon his baptism, Jesus saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Three things set Jesus apart, set Jesus' baptism apart from all others who were baptized. Let me just identify them here as they are plainly on the the, uh, surface level of the text. Jesus saw heaven being torn open. This is unique. No one else, none of the others that came in the mass exodus from Judea or Jerusalem saw at their baptism the heavens being torn open, but Jesus uniquely saw the heavens being split wide open. As a matter of fact, Mark uses the forceful verb here, schizo, which is translated split or torn open. Uh, Matthew and Luke use the less forceful uh, verb here, just opened. Jesus saw the heavens open. Mark uses this forceful word that's full of imagery, The heavens were torn open. They were split. They were ripped apart. Mark's interested in highlighting the fact that God is breaking into human experience here to deliver his people. The heavens were were ripped apart, and God is stepping back in. Mark uses the same verb one other time. And that second and last time is at the crucifixion of Jesus when the centurion confesses that Jesus is God's son and the text tells us that the temple, the temple veil is torn in two from top to bottom, is ripped apart. Symbolizing what? Symbolizing our access to the Father through Christ. We now have access to the Holy of Holies through the shed blood of Jesus Christ the captain of our salvation. But Jesus uniquely saw heaven being torn open. Jesus also uniquely saw the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Again, beautiful imagery here in the text. This dove imagery symbolizes the Spirit's powerful creative activity. Moses wrote in the creation account, In Genesis chapter 1, these words, The earth was without form and was void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The dove is also symbolic of purity and meekness and gentleness and sacrifice, all which accurately characterize the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's noteworthy While most of our English translations say that the Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove, raise your hand, look at your Bible, and raise your hand there for a second, if your translation says the Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove, all your hands should go up. I'm just checking to see if you're listening. I know what your Bible says. I know what your Bible says. Most of our English translations there translate this phrase, the Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove. But that's not the Greek preposition that Mark uses. Mark uses the Greek preposition ace, that is, into. The Spirit literally, as the text reads, descended into Jesus like a dove. Now that begs the question, what does that mean? What does that mean? What is taking place here? How are we to understand these words? Well, in order to understand this phrase, the Spirit descended into Jesus like a dove, we need to remember something about the the nature of Jesus. Jesus is the theanthropic person. Two two words there, compound, theos, God, anthropos, man. He is the God-man. He has a theanthropic nature. He is 100% divine. He is 100% human. At no point in Scripture does his, does his divine nature eclipse his human nature, or does his human nature eclipse his divine nature. Jesus was perfectly God, 100% God, perfectly man, 100% man, very God of very God, very man of very man, the theanthropic God-man. And we must note that Jesus possessed the Spirit in his divine nature as he grew up. 
I mean, there, there's Jesus with his siblings obeying mom and dad. There is Jesus getting along with his siblings. Jesus was sinless from birth. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Jesus possessed the Spirit in his divine nature as he, as he grew up, as he grew in stature as a man, as he, as he grew the spirit, or the spirit descending into him like a dove here is to be understood as the Spirit coming in a unique way to empower Jesus for his earthly ministry, which lie ahead. So we're to see the Spirit descending into Jesus here to be empowering his, his human nature, to empower him for the temptations, the onslaught of temptation, which is just around the corner, and for the rest of his life and ministry until he hangs on a cross. In Old Testament times, the Spirit would come on certain people to empower them for service. The coming of the Spirit into Jesus empowered him for his messianic mission. Luke, the doctor, the physician... In Acts chapter 10, verse 38, tells us that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And then he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So we're to understand this spirit descending into Jesus like a dove as, as empowering him in his human nature, empowering him for the mission that is ahead. It's interesting to note, though, that prior to Jesus' baptism, he did not perform a single miracle. All of Jesus' miracles are subsequent to the Holy Spirit descending into him in this special way as we see here in Mark chapter 1. Jesus saw heaven being ripped open. Jesus saw the Spirit descending into him like a dove. And then the, th the third thing that is unique here that we glean from the text is that Jesus heard an audible voice from heaven. Jesus heard an audible voice from heaven. Prior to Jesus' baptism, God had been silent for centuries. This is the first time in 400 years that God has audibly spoken. We see the end of Malachi, and then we had that intertestamental period that picks back up with the the incarnation, the second advent, or the advent of Christ. But in that intertestamental period, God has been silent for 400 years. But now God speaks. And God speaks confirming what Mark has already told us. Remember, look back at your Bible there. Look at verse 1. This is the title of Mark's gospel here. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark has already told us who Jesus is. He is the Son of God. But now God himself speaks, confirming what Mark has already told us, that Jesus is indeed the Son of God who pleases his heavenly Father and is beloved. The imagery here, though you may not see it right on the surface of the text, is of a coronation. This is a coronation service. This is God the Father placing the crown, so to speak, on his son. Saying, this is my son. This is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. This is the servant savior. This is the Messiah. This is the one that all redemptive history has waited for. Now is the time. Now is the inauguration of his personal ministry. This is a coronation service. And so God the Father expresses his unqualified approval of Jesus and his mission. Let's look at this wonderful declaration that God makes of his son. The first thing that God the Father says of his son here is, You are my son. Listen to those words. Think about Jesus, the son, the, the second member of the triune Godhead, hearing those words from his father after he had come into, burst into our world, John 1, taken on flesh and lived among us. To hear these words from his heavenly father must have thrilled his soul. You're my son. You're my son, God says. This affirms Jesus' unique sonship with the Father, Jesus' unique relationship to his Father. Again, 
Jesus' baptism is, is not your ordinary baptism. Jesus' baptism is a coronation service. And the significance of the Father's words here hark back to Psalm 2-7, where God enthroned the anointed king as his son. Go back and look at that sometime this week. Just write Psalm 2-7 there in the margin. And there is a, a link to the imagery here of Jesus' baptism. And then Psalm 2-7 where the psalmist writes of God enthroning the anointed king as his son. So God declares, you're my son. You are the unique one. The second clause here, my beloved, you are my son, my beloved son. Now, my beloved is either a title, as in the beloved, or it's a descriptive adjective, the beloved son. Could, could be either one. Could be a title, the beloved, or it could just be a descriptive adjective, the beloved son. As a title, it stresses the intensity of love between God the Father and God the Son. But as an adjective, it can be understood in the Old Testament sense of my only son. The beloved son is my only son, my only begotten son. Now this would highlight the, what we refer to as the eternal sonship of the Lord Jesus Christ. There, there is no shortage of scholars out there who, who do not hold to what we would refer to as the eternal sonship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some scholars would say that Jesus Christ became the Son of God, either at his incarnation, or some would hold that Jesus became the Son of God when he was declared to be the Son of God at his baptism. I would reject both of those categorically. I would hold that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. As, as you look at the Trinity throughout the Scripture, you, you even see what we would refer to as, a, as an eternal subordination. There's a structure in the eternal Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They're all co-equal. They're not any less than the other. But they do have unique relationship to each other. And I would submit and I think can make a strong biblical argument for the fact that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. My beloved. Either a title, the beloved one, or an adjective, the beloved son. Either or. Both are helpful there in our understanding of who Jesus is. Abraham's deep love for his son Isaac when he was called to sacrifice him on Mount Moriah is the clearest prototype for this aspect of God's heavenly declaration of his son. You'll find that back in Genesis chapter 22, verse 2. The Father's divine proclamation, you are my son, my beloved son, expresses his steadfast love as well as their essential unity. And then look at this final phrase here. God says, with you I am well pleased. This points to the kind of kingly son Jesus would be in his earthly mission. And there's an allusion here as well in this phrase, with you I am well pleased, all the way back to Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. God says through the prophet Isaiah, behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. It's interesting to note that the verb well-pleased here in verse 11 is actually in the past tense. Actually, in the original Greek language here, it's translated, I was well-pleased. I was well-pleased. What are we to gather from this? Well, we're to gather something of the timeless force of God's being pleased in his son. God is pleased with his son at all times. God's delight in his son never had a beginning, and God's delight in his son will never cease. It will never come to an end. God delights in his son. This is my son in whom I love, and in him I am well pleased. 
And so you ask yourself, what does this mean for me? What does this mean for me? Well, J.C. Ryle notes this. Ryle says, there's immense comfort for us found in the father's words to his son here in Mark chapter 1. He says, there is a rich mine of comfort in these words for all Christ's believing members. That's you if you know Jesus savingly this morning. In themselves and in their daily doings, they see nothing to please God. In other words, What we oftentimes see in ourselves is our sin, our fallenness, our shortcomings, our trespasses. That's what we oftentimes see of ourselves in our daily doings. They are daily sensible of weaknesses, shortcomings, and imperfections in all their ways. But let them recollect that the Father regards them as members of His beloved Son, Jesus Christ. That He sees no spot in them. That He beholds them as being in Christ, clothed in His righteousness and invested with His merit. That they are accepted and beloved. And that when the holy eye of God looks at them, He also is well pleased. That doesn't make the hair on your arms stand up. Only a new heart will. A great encouragement for us when we look at these words, this grand declaration that God the Father makes of God the Son, in Him I am well pleased, is that we being found in Christ are also pleasing to the Father. We're beloved in Him and well pleasing before His holy eye. Not because of our own merit, not because of our own attainment, but because of the merit and the attainment of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Jesus' baptism is a keystone in his life and his ministry. The empowerment of the Holy Spirit to be God's servant and then the, the declaration that follows, you are my son. These enable Jesus not only to speak and act for God, but to speak and act as God, which is who he is. We see this demonstrated all throughout the Gospel of Mark. We see it demonstrated by Jesus' ability to forgive sins, by his acceptance of sinners, by his calling of tax collectors into discipleship, by his healing of the sick, by his casting out demons, by his recovery of the true intent of the Sabbath. It's no coincidence that when Jesus is later confronted by the Sanhedrin, this is, we're skipping forward here to chapter 11, Jesus is confronted by the Jewish Sanhedrin or the religious law of the day. And he is asked this question, by what authority do you do these things? Looking all the way back in Mark's gospel. By what authority do you do all the things that you've done? They ask Jesus. What does Jesus do? He drives his questioners right back to his baptism. Go check out Mark chapter 11, verses 27 through 33. What Jesus does as God's servant ultimately has meaning only because of who he is as God's son. The baptism of Jesus is incredibly significant in the life and the ministry of Jesus. This is the point at which Jesus steps on the scene and he is going public with his ministry. This is really the point at which Jesus turns his face like flint to Jerusalem. No turning back. The cross before him. His mission before him. And he's not turning back. Number two on your outline. Let's look at the temptation of Jesus. The temptation of Jesus. Look at verses 12 and 13. Mark writes, the spirit, here's the word again, immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Notice again, our story moves along very quickly. Mark is kind of the newscaster gospel writer. We're seeing snippets of Jesus' life and ministry. We're seeing them in real time. They're fast-paced, but they're, but they're, they're brief in nature. And so we immediately move from one scene to the next, from one setting to the next. Here goes Jesus. Remember we said Mark's gospel has less of an emphasis on what Jesus said 
and more of an emphasis on the activity of Jesus, what he did. And so immediately again, immediately after the high point of Jesus' baptism, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Heaven had just opened before Jesus, and now hell opens with all its fury. Forty days out there in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. Now compared to Matthew and Luke's account, Mark's account of Jesus' temptation is relatively brief, which again is stylistically true of Mark. Mark says nothing about the temptation's content. He says nothing about its climactic end or Jesus' victory over Satan. Rather, Mark's concern was that this began an ongoing conflict with Satan who kept on throughout his gospel, through his devious means to get Jesus to turn aside from God's will. That's what Mark is highlighting here. He's not highlighting all the details of the temptation. What Mark is highlighting for us is this starts the beginning of temptation that does not stop until Jesus is crucified on Calvary's cross. Satan, trying to tempt Jesus, trying to use devious, crafty, cunning ways to get Jesus to turn aside from God's will for his life. The verb used to describe the action of the Holy Spirit here is, is the word ekbalo. If, raise your hand if you have the New American Standard Translation. Good, it's a faithful translation. I would commend it to you. The NASB translates it here, the Spirit impelled Jesus. Immediately, the Spirit impelled him out into the wilderness. The, the word ekbalo there, it means to be cast out, to be driven out, to be thrust out, or to be forcefully sent. And this language does not in any way suggest to us that Jesus was unwilling or afraid to face his adversary. Rather, it's Mark's way of expressing the intensity of the events that will follow. Jesus is being forcefully pushed out, driven out, cast out into the wilderness, impelled into the wilderness. Not because he's afraid. Friends, the last Jesus you serve is a mamby-pamby Jesus. You serve a warrior Christ, a risen, ruling, reigning, soon-returning warrior king. He's not, he's not afraid of his mission He's not afraid of being confronted by the evil one, by the tempter, by Satan. No sooner was the, the glory of the hour of Jesus' baptism over than came the battle of temptation. No, no time was spent basking in the glory of the heavenly voice or basking in the presence of the heavenly dove. Jesus had a task to perform and he moved toward that task speedily and readily. Resolutely. Mark tells us Jesus was being tempted by Satan. And the word tempted there in the original language means put to the test or to be scrutinized or to be proved in order to discover what kind of person someone is. You put somebody to the test. You challenge them. You, you tempt them so that you can prove what kind of person they really are. Same, same emphasis here on the original language. It's used either in the good sense of God's testing, we see that in Hebrews eleven seventeen, or in the bad sense of enticement to sin by Satan. Both senses are involved here. God is, God is testing, he's divinely testing his son. Satan is enticing Jesus to sin. Both senses are involved. And Jesus will show himself qualified for his messianic mission as he comes out of this temptation victorious. Satan and his forces are constant. They are in intense opposition to and against God's will and his purposes, especially Jesus' messianic mission to the cross. Satan tempts people to turn aside from God's will. He accuses them before God when they fail, and he seeks their ruin, and that's exactly what he sought here in the case of Jesus, to bring him to his ruin. 
Let's look at these temptations. Keep your notes or a pen or something there in Mark chapter 1. Turn over to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew writes uh, a much more expanded or blown up version of the temptation of Christ in Matthew chapter uh, 4, verses 3 through 10. Matthew 4, 3 through 10, there are three distinct temptations that we see taking place in the text here. The first temptation was to feed Jesus. And this was a temptation that was intensely real for Jesus. Remember, Satan is cunning, he's crafty, and and he's wise. And so Matthew tells us that it was after 40 days of fasting, 40 days and 40 nights, that the tempter came to Jesus, who was undoubtedly hungry. He was God, Theos. He was Anthropos. He was man, God in the flesh. He was undoubtedly hungry in his humanity. This is what he says. This is what Satan says. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Notice what Satan does here. Satan attacks the very declaration that God the Father made about his Son at his baptism. You catch that? Remember, God said, you are my beloved Son, with you I'm well pleased. And so Satan comes along and he says, prove yourself. If you really are the Son of God, then prove yourself. But if Jesus bit the hook and he proved himself, he would have demonstrated distrust in his Father's word. That certainly wasn't the case for Jesus. Jesus' food was to do his Father's will. For Jesus, and we would do well to learn from him, honoring the will of his Father meant more to him than any temporary pleasure. It's food in this sense. But for Jesus, honoring his Father, obeying his Father, was more important, meant more to him than any temporal pleasure or satisfaction. Doing God's will should mean more to us than our physical well-being, even our life itself. Are you willing to make that statement, friends? And it's a sobering question for myself. I am willing to obey God even if it means my life. I will not give in. I will not cave to any temporal pleasure. That is nothing but a mirage that presents itself as, as, as being pleasing but quickly vanishes. That's the way sin is. Sin promises to fulfill you and then robs you and kills you. Jesus lived out the psalmist's words in Psalm 63. Because of your steadfast love, because it's better than life, my lips will praise you. I'll bless you as long as I live in your name. I'll lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. There's a good one for you to memorize. In the throes of temptation, your love is better than life. Jesus employed the word of God and responded to Satan by saying, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the Father's mouth. But Satan wasn't finished with Jesus. Look at verses 5 through 7. This is the second onslaught here, the second temptation. This time Satan brings Jesus to the highest point of the temple. And again, as Satan often does, he attacks God's word. He says again, if you are the son of God, then throw yourself down, for it is written. Now what Satan is going to do here is he's going to quote Old Testament passage, but he's going to twist it, he's going to pervert it, just like he did in the garden with Adam and Eve. Did God really say, if you eat of the fruit, you'll die? This is what Satan says here, twisting scripture. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Again, Jesus is tempted to use his power apart from his Father's will. It was was as, as if Satan said, you've shown your trust in the Father in response to my first temptation. Now show the world how much you trust him by throwing yourself from the temple rafters. Demonstrate it. Show the whole world. This will be great. 
Because the scripture says, twisted, he'll send his angels concerning you. In other words, you won't be hurt, and it'll be great, because you'll, demonst- you'll demonstrate yourself to be the son of God. Jesus says, my father's already declared that to be true. That's not a question that's open for debate. Satan is enticing Jesus, saying, surely good things will come of this. You'll be safe. But Jesus, again, does not bite the hook. Jesus knew that his father had not commanded him to jump, and he was not about to sidestep his father's word. Jumping from the temple is never justified, even if the results appear to be profitable in some way. Catch that. It has application in many ways for your and my life. Jumping from the temple, fill in the blank, whatever it may be, is never justified. Is never justified if it means disobedience to God's word. Even if the results are seemingly acceptable. External prosperity, whatever it may be, is not a good measure of God's approval. God approves of obedience, period. Period. Notice again here, Jesus used God's word to combat Satan's temptation. Jesus replies, again, it is written, you shall not put your Lord God to the test. Friends, God does not appreciate that. Can we just agree on that? God does not agree, or does not appreciate being put to the test. Let's look at this third and final temptation here. Look at verses 8 through 10. This is Satan's final attempt to dissuade Jesus from his mission. Matthew writes, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. And he said to him, Satan said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Satan presented Jesus with a vision of the world in which the nations stood ready to disband their man-made idols and to fall at his feet in worship. In other words, Satan falsely offered the crown apart from the crucifixion. You catch that? You see what's going on here? Satan is offering the crown, though he can't. He's offering the crown apart from the crucifixion. He's trying to woo Jesus with the fact that he can win the world without the rejection, without the pain, without the agony of the cross. The temptation was to take the easy route to kingship, to sidestep the cross. But that was not the Father's will, and Jesus would not take a single step away from what his Father had ordained, even if it cost him his life. The lesson there for us, friends. So Jesus sends Satan packing when he declares, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. It was the wilderness. It was the wilderness which was the testing or the proving ground for Jesus. Remember the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 reminds us, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who has been tempted in in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Just as the Israelites went into the wilderness for 40 years and they failed, Jesus was sent into the wilderness for 40 days and he succeeds. And so now, having triumphed over his enemy, Jesus can now go and call forth a people to share in his inheritance. And it's because of our solidarity with Jesus, because of our union and our association with Jesus, if we know him savingly, that we too can have victory over sin. Sin no longer has mastery. Sin no longer has dominion over us. This is the good news that we preach, and this is the good news that we must believe, that we must cling to. Jesus is triumphant in my stead. We live in a Genesis 3 fallen world where it seems like the onslaught of temptation is around every corner. It seems as though you you can't avoid, it's impossible to escape the, the assault of temptation. At times it seems as if temptation is just bearing down from every direction. Peter reminds us, He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, you're not left without defense. 
You're not left without sufficient defense. In Christ, we have the Spirit of God, just like Jesus had. We have the Word of God, just like Jesus had. And we have prayer, just like Jesus modeled for us. These are our God-ordained weapons of defense in the moment of trial and temptation. But you must must employ them. And so must I. For some of us, we we walk around scratching our heads at times, wondering why we, we succumb to temptation and sin over and over and over again. We almost seem to be in the spin cycle, back and forth and back and forth and back and forth of sin and temptation. And we scratch our heads wondering, why is this? Well, for some of us, and I'm challenged here too, I'm a man, I'm frail in every way. I'm easily tempted, I'm I'm easily dissuaded away from my first love, but for some of us, it's because we'll go home today and we'll put our Bible on on a nightstand or on a shelf and we'll pick it up next Wednesday and blow a thin film of dust off of it. And then we wonder why we have no ready defense in the moment of temptation. You gotta employ it. You've got to employ it, just like Jesus did. As it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the Father's mouth. Martin Luther, in perhaps his magnum opus hymn, penned these familiar words. This will ring familiar to you. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we cannot endure, we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. We have to employ it. We have to employ it. Let me say just a few brief words. We're at our time this morning, and so we'll, we'll conclude with point number two. I'll pick up point number three next week as I also say some things about Jesus' selection of his disciples, of his first disciples. And so we'll, we'll, hit, we'll hit point number three. Let me go ahead and give it to you so you can write it on your outline. It's the message of Jesus. We're looking at the baptism of Jesus, the temptation of Jesus, and the message of Jesus. We'll press pause on the message. We'll come to that next week. Let me just conclude here with a few words before we turn our, our attention to a time of worship through communion. Let me say just a few concluding words here about the temptation of Jesus. Mark highlights an additional detail that is not found in Matthew or Luke's account of Jesus' temptation. Mark adds this phrase, and he was with the wild animals. Matthew writes nothing about that. Luke writes nothing about that. There are a couple things to note here. First, the mention of wild animals serves to emphasize the dangers associated with being in the wilderness. This was no walk in the park. Uh, the, the, the wilderness was, was filled with danger. And that's exactly where the Spirit drove, forced out, impelled Jesus. Great dangers associated with being in the wilderness. This was an undomesticated territory. Jesus was sent out into a hostile environment, even if there had not been a confrontation with Satan. The wilderness is a hostile, undomesticated territory. Secondly, there may be some illusion here as well. Remember the garden setting? God placed Adam in the midst of a beautiful and peaceful garden over which he, Adam, was to exercise a priestly reign and dominion. But Adam lost that privilege because of his sin. But Jesus, on the other hand, is sent into a dangerous, uninhabited wilderness, and he emerges victorious over temptation and sin. Thus, he reestablishes the kingdom of God on earth. Beautiful, beautiful imagery here. In Christ, the dominion that Adam lost has been restored to all who trust in him. The picture here potentially is also one of a future peace and righteousness when Jesus returns and reestablishes his his millennial reign, his kingdom, when, when we see the vicious beast and the child laying down together. It's that kingdom that is that is marked by peace and righteousness. And then lastly here I want to note 
that the angels were ministering to Jesus as he faced the onslaught of Satan's fiery darts. Brothers and sisters, there are divine reinforcements in your hour of trial. You might remember the story in 2 Kings chapter 6 of Elisha and his servant when they were surrounded, hemmed in by their enemies in Dothan. Jeremiah, who presumably wrote 2 Kings, records the story for us. Just listen here for a moment. When Elisha's servant rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. They're hemmed in on all sides. And his servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And he said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Brothers and sisters, here's the reality. Jesus was not left to fight the battle of temptation alone, and neither are we. Neither are we. We serve a mighty God who has equipped us in every way to fight and to be victorious in temptation. And there's a whole lot going on that we don't even see. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it is true. Thank you that it exposes us, that it pierces our hearts, that it shines light on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the ministry of the Holy Spirit uh, to make much of, to exalt uh, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that as each person uh, contemplates uh, the, the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ and his personal effectual work in their life, his redeeming, saving work in their life, that there would be welling up in their heart and in their mouth great and worthy praise. May Jesus Christ be honored. We pray these things in his name. Amen.